Chapter Seven of Stories in Gray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Grzynski. Stories in Gray by Barry Payne. Chapter Seven The Last Chance. One. Dawn was coming. Birds were waking and twittering in the embankment gardens. A cool breeze swept out the heavy and sultry air of the night. In another half-hour Mr. Horrocks would be able to extinguish the lights at his coffee-stall. Meanwhile, in an interval of business, he talked to a young man, who had been a regular customer of his for many nights past. Mr. Horrocks did not remain idle while he talked. He wiped his counter down, and gave certain thick cups and saucers as much washing as he thought would be good for them. He was a placid and portly man of fifty, much respected by his customers. If two of these scarecrows of the night had a difference, they would occasionally ask Mr. Horrocks to adjudicate, and from his decisions there was no appeal. The young man who was talking to Horrocks was in rags, but he was not altogether ill-looking. He had melancholy eyes and a gentle expression. His speech was the speech of an educated man. "'I can find nothing to do,' he said. "'I'm at the end of my money. I have some thoughts of putting myself in the water. The trouble is that I can swim a bit.' Mr. Horrocks considered the proposition without emotion, much as if the young man had said he was going to have his hair cut. "'I shouldn't advise it,' he said. "'You never know your luck.' Now, from what some of the others told me tonight, I rather gathered you as one time at Cambridge College. No, I was an Oxford man. I was sent down. All the same thing, said Mr. Horrocks. It means you've got education. That's a grand thing. Wish I had it myself. That gives you an advantage over the others, that does. Schoolmastering, now that's open to you. In these clothes, and with no character... "'That's against you,' Mr. Horrocks admitted. "'Done time?' He put the question as casually as if he had been asking the young man if he knew Brighton. "'No, I've never been in prison. I was a gambler and still am. I drink very hard, but I've given that up. It has to be all or nothing with me. I've been chucked by my family and most of my friends, and I've chucked the rest myself out of pride. I believe I have the makings of an artist in me. A painter, you know. Some of the screevers do well enough. You want a dry day and a good pitch. I don't mean that. I mean real painting. But I can't get at it, and I don't suppose there'd be any money in it if I could. I can't beg or steal or use any tools that make a nasty noise. Some men can, but I can't. I can't do what I don't like. Ah, said Mr. Horrocks. If you start picking and choosing, no wonder you finds it difficult. You can't afford to do that. That's what you've got to say to yourself. Seeing now as you can't get at the painting and decorating, what is it you do want? I should like your berth very well, said the young man. Hard work, me young friend. A deal harder than you think. There are some kinds of work, said the young man reflectively, that I don't object to at all. I like to be out at night. I like to talk to the people who've gone under. I like to see the dawn coming. You've got an interesting life, Mr. Horrocks. 
Is there any money in it? There isn't a fortune, but there's a livelihood for a worker. If you'd take me on to help you, I'd work. Mr. Horrocks extinguished an evil-smelling flare. There's no work for you here, he said, but I might find it for you elsewhere. Meaning what? Meaning that I could do with another stall. I should know where to pitch it and how to work it. If I had it, I'd give you a chance. You can't get a stall in a fit-out like this for nothing. If you could come to me and put down three golden sovereigns, I'd start you right away in a sort of partnership with myself. Three golden sovereigns, said the young man, and laughed. Well, said Horrocks, that ought to be possible for a young man who's been to Oxford College and had all the advantages. Can't be done. I've no more clothes to pawn, nothing but what I stand up in. If that ring on your ringer ain't flash, you've got a chance still. Their ring was a plain gold signet. The young man looked at it. It's all right, he said. What could I get for it? A sovereign. I'd lend you that on it myself. Then you'd go to the Salvationers, or to the church army, and they'd show you how to start at peddling. You'll have made the money in a month. It's worth thinking about. Better than the river, anyway. The young man drew the ring from his finger. I hadn't meant to part with this, he said, but, however, it's the last chance. Take it, Mr. Horrocks. If you find it's all right, give me a sovereign for it tomorrow night. Mr. Horrocks examined the ring with great care. Then he took a sovereign from his waistcoat pocket and laid it down on the counter. "'You can get quite a nice lot of stuff for that,' he said, "'as much as you can carry. "'Dress materials and a line of cheap watches is what I should recommend. "'Get hold of the servants at the good houses. "'They've all got some money to spend, and they're mostly mugs.' "'No,' said the young man, "'I'm not going to do that.' "'What, then?' asked Mr. Horrocks. "'Perseus for the Derby,' said the young man. "'Didn't I tell you I was a gambler?' "'They tell me it's all right,' said Mr. Horrocks. "'There's nothing else in it except the favorite. "'I'd thought of backing it myself. "'Still, you see, it's no certainty. "'The other thing is.' "'The young man laughed, finished his coffee, and walked away. Two. "'Edward Seaton tramped from London to Epsom. "'This is the cheapest way to go to the Derby, "'and on a fine day it is not the least pleasant.' He had deposited his sovereign with a substantial bookmaker whom he had known in his younger days. He had threepence in his possession. One penny of this was to pay for his breakfast. The remaining twopence was to help him on his way back to town. Of course, he might be able to get a lift for nothing, but it was better to have something in reserve. Queer and erratic, he saw now a possibility of the kind of life that he would like. He would do his utmost to make Horrocks new coffee stall successful. He himself would live as cheaply as possible. Very soon he would be able to buy the materials, and when his night's work was over would get two or three hours of painting before he went to bed. It was a life which would never bring him into contact with any of the people whom he had known in his old days, the people before whom he felt humiliated. He would be dealing with the deadbeat, and he understood them. He had had hours of the greatest excitement, thinking over this last chance, planning the great results that might ultimately follow from his partnership with Mr. Horrocks. His life so far had been a mistake. 
He had tried to live the conventional life and had torn up his nerves and driven him to drink. He had neglected his one natural gift. A few sneers from his family had been enough to make him ashamed and to convince him that he could never become an artist. That was all past now. In future, he would model his life to suit himself. And one day, possibly, he might find himself back in his old position. What he had to do was to be independent, to judge for himself, to map out his own line. In his boyhood, he had tried to be docile, and docility had been a complete failure. He was no longer excited. The moment for that had gone past. He got away from the roaring crowd on the hill and sat at a little distance by himself. He had meant to watch the race, but after the first false start, he found that he could not stand it. It was better for him to sit quietly with his head in his hands. He could hear now the roar of the crowd. Perseus! Perseus wins! Perseus! He rose to his feet now and walked slowly back to the crowd. He limped badly, for his feet were blistered with the long walk. "'What's one?' he asked of the first man he met. "'The favorite,' said the man exultantly. "'One by a head. Good finish.' Seaton burst out laughing. "'Very good finish,' he said, and turned away. There would be no hurry to get back to London now. He spent his twopence on food, for he was terribly hungry, and then sought out some spot on the downs where he could lie quiet and sleep. As he limped along, his eyes caught a bright object lying in the grass. For one breathless moment, he thought that luck had come back to him. Then he picked the thing up. It was not a sovereign, after all. It was a new farthing, on one side of which a cross had been scratched. As he stood looking at it, two people approached him. They belonged to the class that he did not want to meet any more, a man and a woman. The man was elderly and correctly dressed. A veritable tailor's triumph. The woman was very young, pretty, and impulsive in manner. "'You found it?' she said eagerly. Seaton raised his cap. "'I have found a new farthing,' he said. "'If that is what you mean, I shall be very happy to return it to you.' She stared at him. His words and appearance did not seem to consort together. She took the coin from him, thanked him, and turned to her companion. "'George,' she said, "'give this man a sovereign, please.' "'Certainly. A shilling, by all means. "'And a very good bargain for you, my fine fellow. "'If you can keep on exchanging farthings for shillings, "'you'll soon be rich.' "'Don't be a fool, George. "'I said a sovereign. "'Are you getting deaf already?' "'Oh, have it your own way,' said the man, "'as he took the coin from his sovereign case. "'But,' said Edward Seaton to the lady, why do you give me a sovereign for a farthing? Why? Did you never hear of mascots? That farthing's the finest mascot I ever had in my life. I wouldn't have lost it for anything. Here, I say, said the man, we can't stop talking to this chap all day. Of course you can't, said Seaton. He took the coin, thanked them, and limped away. Here, then, was a reprieve. The last chance was not yet quite over. It was true that his scheme had failed, but that seemed to him now of much less importance. He would not be compelled to walk back to London, and when he got there he would be able to afford himself the luxury of a bath and a good bed. Also he would eat and drink. 
and tomorrow, of course, he would die. He passed through a crowd of shouting bookmakers, and unintentionally his eyes fell on the list of horses for the next race, with the odds chalked up against them. One of the horses had a name which arrested him. He picked his bookmaker very carefully. "'What price farthing?' he asked. "'Thirties.' "'Right,' said Seaton, handing up the coin. "'I want a sovereign on.' The bookmaker was a good-humoured, honest-looking old fellow. He bent down towards Seaton. "'Look here,' he said. "'You don't want no thick in it. Have a shilling on it. It can't win. No earthly. I don't want to take a poor man's money. Put a shilling on and save the rest to buy the Mrs. Atarara.' "'I dare say you're right,' said Seaton. "'And you're a good chap, anyhow. But I want to put that sovereign on. I suppose you can pay if I win.' The bookmaker laughed. Pay? Yes, and be thankful to have the chance. You're the only man on the earth that's backed it. A few minutes later, Seaton, with thirty-one pounds in his pocket, was making his way to the railway station, when once more he encountered that extremely well-dressed old gentleman. I beg your pardon, said Seaton. Chuck it, said the man. You get no more out of me today. I wanted to return this sovereign. Thank you very much for the loan of it. 3. Mr. Horrocks could hardly believe his own eyes. He groped for a possible explanation. Then you didn't back Perseus after all, he said. I did, and I lost. You've got a new fit out of clothes. You've just given me a quid to get your ring back. It beats me. Oh, I see. Your people have been coming down with the stuff, eh? No. After the derby had been run, I borrowed a sovereign and backed the winner for the next race, thirty to one. You, in those rags, managed to borrow a sovereign on the Epsom Downs? Man, you're a genius! Yes, I know, said Seaton. But let's talk business. What? You're still game to come in with me? Of course I am. I've got to live, and I want to paint. I shall get my living out of the coffee stall, and I shall get it in a way that won't upset and annoy me. I shall have plenty of time left for painting. I don't sleep much. Seaton went back with Horrocks to his home after business, and was presented to Mrs. Horrocks. He examined such accounts as Horrocks kept, and was surprised to find that so much profit could be made by catering, in part at any rate, for the last pennies of the deadbeat. Of course, Horrocks had working men customers as well, substantial men who really breakfasted. For the next few nights, Seaton assisted Horrocks with his stall and learned more thoroughly the details of the trade. After that, he managed another stall by himself. Ten years later, when Edward Seaton was elected associate of the Royal Academy, nobody was surprised. Many thought that he should have been elected earlier. Good fortune had followed him persistently. The first two pictures that he sent in to the Academy were hung on the line. They were London subjects, Dawn on the Embankment and Saturday Night in the Edgware Road. They were mentioned with approval by a bishop preaching in Westminster Abbey. In all questions of art, the bishop was an innocent child, but that did not matter. Through the whole of Monday, there was always a little group of people in front of Seaton's pictures. A critic, 
who had returned to the show after many days in order to settle a point in dispute between himself and another critic, noticed the group, and for the first time noticed Seaton's pictures. He spent about half an hour on them, and then decided to discover Seaton. He discovered him in an article in a daily paper, also in various paragraphs, also in conversation with critics and other artists. The innocent bishop, finding to his utter amazement that he had had for once appreciated a work of art, purchased Dawn on the Embankment for the sum of one hundred pounds. He subsequently sold it for five hundred, and we may be sure that he devoted the profits to some good purpose. Having taken his line, Seaton kept it. He never painted a portrait. He never painted anything except London. The critic, who had been his first evangelist, was in the habit of saying that Seaton had discovered London. In the following exhibition, he again showed two pictures, Sunset in Regent's Park and The Coffee Stall. He sold both of these, and sold them well. It was at this juncture that he gave up work at the coffee stall himself and became known once more to his family and friends. His family, having done their very utmost to prevent Edward from becoming an artist, now rejoiced in a success which they asserted and believed they had always foretold. On the occasion of his election, a few bachelor friends of his asked him to dine at the club. They were for the most part artists but the talk after dinner strayed over many subjects, and lingered finally on the subject of the theatre. "'I often wonder,' said old Burden, "'what became of Margaret Gay? "'She was about the finest Juliet we've ever had. "'She could play comedy, too, "'and she was as pretty as one could wish. "'I wonder why we never hear of her now.' "'She's been ill,' said another man. "'I know it, because I was painting her portrait at the time. "'That was a queer thing.' She showed me her mascot, a farthing with a cross scratched on it. Her belief in it was intense. She said she would never part from it, and that while she had it with her, luck would never leave her. Next day she was down with rheumatic fever. It was nearly a year ago, and I've got that unfinished portrait in my studio still. I've never seen her since. Why not? asked Seaton. I ought to have done meant to have done, but just at that time I was most appallingly busy, and afterwards it slipped out of my mind. I suppose she's still alive, as we've seen no obituary notices. I'd go and look her up next week, if I knew where she lived. She had a house at Earl's Court, but somebody or other told me that she had given that up and gone away. "'Let's see,' said Seaton reflectively. "'Whom did she marry?' "'Never married anybody.' Might have done, as things have turned out, I dare say. It would have been better for her if she had. I don't suppose she had saved much money. She was a reckless little woman and a born gambler. Gambling's a mistake, said Seaton, as he filled his glass and passed on the decanter. He himself played bridge for half a crown a hundred now, and never for any higher point, and never made a bet. He had given up teetotalism and drank wine at dinner, and at no other time. He had got himself in hand. It had taken a good deal of doing, but it was done. On the following morning, Seaton went to a private inquiry office. "'I want,' he said, 
the present address of Miss Gay. "'Margaret Gay, the actress?' asked the private detective. "'Yes. About a year ago she had a house at Earl's Court. That's all I can tell you. Can you do that for me?' The detective smiled. "'I wish I was never asked to do anything more difficult, sir.' You understand that it must be done without Miss Gay's knowledge, without causing her any annoyance. Quite so. As a matter of course, you will have the address tomorrow, sir. 4. Seaton drove down to Wimbledon in his own car. Then he sent the driver back with the car and started on foot in search of the house. He found it with no great trouble, a very small house, in a very back street, and a very young servant answered the bell. "'Is Miss Gay in?' "'Well,' said the maid, doubtfully, "'she is in, but give her this note. My card's in it, and ask if she will see me.' In a minute the maid returned. "'Miss Gay will see you, sir.' Seaton was shown into a drawing-room of the smallest size, principally furnished with a grand piano. As he entered, Margaret Gay rose from her chair by the fire, still holding his note in one hand. She was thinner than when he last saw her, and she was older, as a matter of fact, thirty-two. The impression she made on Seaton was that her beauty had become etherealized and rather pathetic. "'I don't understand this at all,' she said, as she shook hands with him. "'You say I once saved your life. I never did anything so heroical.' I'm afraid I've saved very little, and certainly not the life of a famous artist. Won't you sit down and tell me about it, Mr. Seaton?" He sat down and told her his story from beginning to end. "'Then,' she said, "'it was true what I read in one of the newspapers, that you once kept a coffee stall?' "'Perfectly true. Quite interesting work for a time.' "'And is it really true that you've been looking for me ever since?' "'Quite true. I did not know your name, you see. I had nothing to go by. It was only two nights ago that I was dining with some artists, and they spoke with admiration of your acting. I'm afraid that's all over, said Margaret. I hope so, said Seaton, and did not appear to notice that Miss Gay looked slightly perplexed at this. And one of the artists, he continued, happened to mention your farthing mascot. Then, of course, I knew... I had a very long illness, and had to leave London. I went well down in the world. None of my old friends ever comes near me. How did you get my address? In the dirtiest possible way through a private inquiry office. If any dirtier way had been necessary, I would have taken that. It has taken me ten years to find you. Once I was on the track, I couldn't, of course, have allowed anything to stop me. Why not? But it's so obvious. Now tell me all about yourself. Who was the man that you called George? George Belmont. He was a banker. He was a very good friend of mine until he got angry with me. All the same, you were quite right to refuse a man who was old enough to be your grandfather. Was he much surprised that I returned him the sovereign? She laughed. He was astounded. It made the story dearest to his heart. He told it everywhere. He dined out on it. He made people sick of it. But won't you get on, please? I want more about yourself. But really, is there any reason why I should tell you? 
there is the best reason in the world and you shall hear it later let me see you fell ill go on please and so she told her story which was ordinary enough she had at one time been very successful and had earned high salaries she had been impulsive generous and improvident rheumatic fever has its sequelae and she had been ill and unable to work for a long time she considered that she had now entirely recovered seaton disagreed with this but she found it difficult to get back into her profession again on the old basis she had an offer from one manager but it was not very tempting it was not an offer that he would have ventured to make two years before she was in doubt about it she still had the farthing mascot and though it had not treated her very well lately perhaps after all it would give her a last chance it was no longer a new farthing it had grown very dingy perhaps said seaton gravely if you paid it a little attention it would reward you you should clean it wash it in a twenty-five per cent solution of sulfuric acid and polish with pumice again she laughed how on earth do you know these things quite simple i work on copper plates sometimes are you going to give me any tea of course i am then i think i'll step out to the telephone office first something you've forgotten i sent my car back i wanted to return here at seven to take us both to dine in town afterwards we can go to the theatre or we can talk just as you like but you amazing person you haven't even asked me if i'll go yet i don't think i ought to and i don't believe i've got a dress oh yes you have you simply must come do you think when i've found you after ten years that i'm going to let you go again never i won't hear of it ah here's the tea after tea they cleaned the farthing mascot and brought it to a great state of perfection without using either sulfuric acid or pumice as they did so they talked eagerly in close proximity when the motor-car arrived margaret gay was quite ready as he was driving her back to her house that night she mentioned once more the engagement which had been offered her it's not what i like but i think i should accept it don't you no certainly not why not because i do not wish my wife to be on the stage she was astounded he explained further and with considerable eloquence as he kissed her when they said good-night it is probable that she was convinced end of chapter seven